everybody. Welcome to another episode of Born to Rain. We are excited to have you guys with us. We got, we're following up. We're doing more eschatology because who doesn't love more eschatology? Everybody's favorite topic. Everybody's favorite topic. Um, and today we've got a very prestigious guest with us. Yeah, um, this guest is has been kind enough to share with us some of his time. He is the senior researcher for Calcedon's on Calcedon's ongoing work of Christian scholarship. He is also the senior editor of Calcedon's magazine, Faith for All of Life. He is considered a foremost expert in the thinking of R.J. Rushdeny. He is a sought-after speaker. He travels extensively in lectures on behalf of Christian Reconstruction, trigger word, and the Calcedon Foundation. And a little side note, he's also an accomplished musician and composer, and I'm going to add in there also an author. Tim just recently purchased one of his books. Uh, Mr. Martin Sobretti, welcome to Born Terrain. Good to be here, guys. Well, as we kind of jump into the the topic of uh, eschatology, well, maybe even before we get there, uh, if you kind of give us some background on what what the work is that you do over at uh, Calcedon and give, give the listeners just kind of an idea of what what Calcedon is, um, who was R.J. Rushdeny, and, and and that type of thing. Right. Calcedon is a Christian educational organization. It's basically, uh, its purpose is to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, to apply sanctified Christian scholarship to all areas of life. And so Dr. Rushduni basically was penetrating a whole host of disciplines and exhibiting how they can be brought into subjection to Christ. And uh, did a fairly good job in most cases, or uh, at least pointed the way, was a pioneer. And uh, that's important because uh, lots of times we've given away points, and we've kind of been cowardly in how we approach things. So it, it's good to have someone leading the way. Now, he passed away in 2001, uh, and at the time he did, about two-thirds of his books had been put into print, but he still had a third of his books still unpublished primarily because he had a zero debt policy. He wasn't going to go into the into debt uh, in order to publish a book. So no books are published until all the capital for that publication is in the bank and ready to, uh, to go. So we've been uh, chipping away at that legacy in the last 19 years to get all that material out and to create an essentially a large library uh, that gives examples of how to go about this process. Many of his books are seminal in the sense that uh, uh, they're nearly definitive, and others uh, at least show that there is no area that is ex exempt from the authority of Christ and from the witness of Scripture to that area, whether it be uh, the hard sciences, the cultural arts, the fine arts, uh, the practical arts for that matter, uh, and of course the social uh, sciences. Uh, we, one of the big mistakes I think people make is assuming that Christian Reconstruction is merely a political or social model, and it's much, much more than that. Mm -hmm. I can assure you that Dr. Van Til was right when he said, uh, if there was a button that an atheist could press such that when he pressed it, he would uh, not have to be confronted with the witness of God's existence and authority, uh, he would have his finger on that button 100% of the time. And so our mission is to take away excuse, leave men without excuse, which means that every single nook and cranny of human enterprise has to be taken captive to the beings of Christ. The joke I usually tell at conferences is, 
if we reconstructed every single area except respiratory pharmacology, then every atheist would become a respiratory <laughs> pharmacologist. It's the only safe place to hide, and we should leave them no place to hide. Uh, Dr. Rashtuni's input in the education area has been very important on a practical level. Not only did he call out Christians uh, for putting their children in public schools as early as 1961 in the book Intellectual Schizophrenia, he put his money where his mouth is. was. When uh, homeschoolers and Christian schools are being hauled into court uh, and being attacked by the public school supporters, uh, Dr. Rashtuni went around the country on his own dime to be an expert court witness on the First Amendment right of parents to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Uh, in fact, here in Texas, where I live, uh, there was a trial, the Leaper trial, where Dr. Rashtuni's testimony was so powerful, it tilted the entire trial in favor of the parents. And, wow. when, that, and when that was appealed to the Supreme Court in, uh, in Texas, uh, it failed again, thanks to Dr. Rashtuni's testimony. And wow. so uh, that sent a, a shockwaves around the, the, the country because people said, well, if Texas couldn't even get that squared away, uh, we're in a we're going to have a hard time fighting these uh, reconstructionists too. Uh, yes. And so we're not molested here uh, regarding homeschooling. And this is a legacy of Dr. Rashtuni uh, see, seeing the thing through. He didn't just say, be warm and prosper, right? <laughs> he he right. went uh, and uh, made it, pull, you know, what they say, uh, pulled up his sleeves and got to work to uh, to confront the enemies of God in a very concrete way. Uh, and we benefit from that. He's kind of an unsung hero in many respects, but yeah, he, uh, that's what he's are, all about. Yeah, we're both um, we were both homeschooled growing up, and it's one of those. I, I've been telling people recently, uh, Dr. Rush Juni was one of those. Um, he's the the hero, the most influential person in the homeschool movement that nobody's ever heard of. Uh, exactly, the unknown grandfather. Yeah. yeah, he's actually getting ready to make a. His, his thought is getting ready to make a comeback. Kurt Cameron is making a film that's essentially built on the thought of R.J. Rushduni from the articles that I'm reading. So, um, Mr. Salbretti, where can you be listened to and read? Uh, certainly the Chalcedon website has most of the material that I've published. Uh, Chalcedon, C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N dot E-D-U. Uh, and so you can uh, find all the material there. Uh, virtually all the books that Dr. Rashtuni wrote are available for free and can be read there for free on the site. Uh, we want to expand the influence of this material, not restrict it or put it behind a, some kind of price wall. So uh, it's there to be had. Now, what usually happens is people say, I want a physical book. This isn't good enough just to look at it on the screen. So it doesn't hurt us any, but it certainly is good to know that the material can be had uh, 24-7 uh, so long as the Internet stays up. Now, that's not necessarily a given anymore, given seeing right. how things are playing out in yeah. the world of censorship and cancel culture. Uh, but at this point in time, yeah, everything is available, and we intend to increase the amount of material, not decrease it. And so my material is in there, though I'm a relatively recent contributor. I've been uh, working with Dr. Rashtuni since approximately 1981, 82. And, uh, but he was busy. His first book was published in 1959. And we even have earlier manuscripts than that. So uh, not that I'm a, I'm not a latecomer by today's standards, but back in the day, uh, I was you know, one of the young men like you were, and we need fresh blood at all times. We want the next generation to catch the vision 
and start running in the same direction and stand on the shoulders of giants that went before. And if uh, we don't stumble along the way, I think great things can be had down the, down the line, multiple generations down the line. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, standing on the shoulders of giants, one of your other favorite uh, theologians was the, the great B.B. Uh, Warfield. So as we kind of start looking at the, the eschatology side of this, this mm-hmm. discussion, um, both Dr. Rushduni and um, Warfield were both uh, post-millennials. But can you give us a little background on uh, who Warfield was and kind of his perspective as we kind of get into this, this, the distinctive of his um, eschatological position? Sure. Uh, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield uh, ultimately was a student of, uh, and a co-worker with Hodge, um, both uh, Charles and uh, A. W. Hodge. So, therefore, his position was at Princeton. And he died in 1921 and was said that, that when they carried his body out, that was really the end of Princeton because there was no more backstop for uh, an anchor to biblical conservatism. So that seminary went very liberal very shortly thereafter, compelling uh, Warfield's protege, J. Gresham Machen, to found Westminster Seminary as an alternative, mm-hmm. as, an, as a way to say we do have a, uh, a light here that's not going to go out and be snuffed uh, in the interest of uh, humanistically uh, distorting scripture. So during the time he was at Princeton, he basically represented the tail end of the development of Princetonian theology. And uh, it was said that he was so skilled and and learned that he could chair any of the departments at Princeton Theological Seminary. Very few people are so well-rounded in their theological training that you could say that of them. They tend to be specialists. I'm a New Testament guy, or I'm a church history guy, or I'm systematics. His was polemical and didactic theology, but again, he could have held a position in New Testament, which he had t- taught at a previous seminary, uh, or the Old Testament, or, and that's what made him so rounded. He's kind of like a, pre- a proto-Rashtuni, if you will. And Rashtuni held Warfield in high regard. And when Rashtuni became post-millennial in his thinking, it was due to Warfield's works. And he actually adopted Warfield's ideas pretty wholesale into the early 50s. That changed because the form of postmillennialism that tended to dominate in the middle of the 20th century actually had a very pessimistic ending to history. Uh, and uh, in other words, it had what Rashtuni called an amillennial hangover attached to it, saying, yes, things are going to get better, but at the, right before the end, everything goes to hell in the handbasket. There's a giant final apostasy and it all falls apart. And uh, Rashtuni bought that, bought into that. And that's obvious in the 1970 commentary he wrote on the book of Revelation. Uh, He talks about the same idea of a final apostasy. But in the 80s and 90s, he uh, reassessed Warfield and said, I made a mistake. I got pushed off my my footing here, and I'm going to go back to where I started from. Warfield was correct. In what respect was Warfield correct? Warfield taught that the victory of Christ over this world would be total, that the Great Commission would be fulfilled to the last man standing. That's not just the majority, it's the totality with no exceptions. And that's huge. This is really the kind of wording we see throughout the Bible anyway. So at that point, uh, Dr. Rashtuni said, I'm becoming more literal 
by far than any amillennialist or former postmillennialist or premillennialist, because there are so many scriptures that speak of the total victory of Christ and of the Holy Spirit over the world. And there's no reason to evade them or to uh, modify them or qualify them in any way, shape, or form. We have an unqualified victory of the Great Commission. So it's literally true that you, no man need teach his neighbors saying, No to the Lord, but they shall all know him from the least to the greatest. And God writes his law on their hearts and on their minds where they write them, and they'll be his people, and he'll be their God. And that's huge. So we call that eschatological universalism, mm-hmm. which is not standard universalism, because the standard universalism, when we don't add any word in front of it to qualify it, simply means everyone goes to heaven. Hitler goes to heaven, Mao Zedong goes to heaven, Judas is in heaven, et cetera, et cetera. That is known to be heretical, and we reject it too. But eschatological universalism simply states that at some point in the future, uh, every man living will be saved. They will be among the elect. There are no non-elect alive at that point. And uh, that's a very, very different idea. That means that God's justice is still being exhibited in hell because once you die, your destiny is sealed forever. And so there is a hell in this system, and it does have people in it. But the majority of people are not going to be in it. So all that to say, this is not regular universalism. This is not heretical universalism. This is optimism concerning the Great Commission. And I think it's important because those who fight against this uh, actually have build theologies that assert, you know, we need to make sure that not everybody is saved because my theology requires unsaved people to exist at the end. My theology requires a failure of the Great Commission, an incompleteness to the task. The Holy Spirit will not be poured out on all flesh. In fact, if I see the word all or every, I'm going to have to modify that and then tut-tut people and say, no, 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 do not uh, uh, look at the man behind the curtain here. Uh, We will tell you how to take these scriptures and to evade their prima facie meaning. And I say it's time for us to, to take God at his word. And this is what Warfield did. This is what Rush Dooney ended up doing. Bettner was of the same mind. He put Warfield's view in his book, The Millennium. It was first published in the 50s. Uh, and he had trouble with it. He said, I have a hard time understanding how he arrives at this, but he's too important to omit. So he at least included the position, though he said, I, I, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around it. By the time he reprinted that book in 1984, he rewrote those sections, had Presbyterian Reformed uh, readjust the book and add a new chapter uh, and basically say there is no final apostasy. That is an amillennial hangover. It doesn't belong in the postmillennial system. Mm-hmm. And the sooner we get rid of it, the better. Now, Warfield said something, I mean, uh, Bettner said something very important. He says, these changes come slowly. It's not going to be snap a finger and overnight everyone's going to uh, switch their theology over to Warfield. That's nice, but that's also <laughs> uh, a very romantic view. These changes come slowly. Yeah, you were saying, son? Yeah, I was just saying a little bit of wishful thinking. Yes, yes. Uh, and so people have to do their, and this is okay. I'm okay with people who have convictions. And anyone who I can, uh, can be easily moved out their convictions, you know, show them a verse and they suddenly switch their theology that's not necessarily healthy. I'd rather that they have convictions and grow through deliberation and scriptural study. 
you know, saying, we'll, we'll, we'll talk, talk about this later. We'll study this and see, you know, some of the strongest post mills I know fought it tooth and nail from whatever their original position was. And that allowed them to understand what they were opposing and understand better what they finally adopted as their uh, final position, which is a victory of the gospel and of the Holy Ghost as he converts the world. So uh, I'd rather have opponents that are genuinely sincere and interested in what the scripture says. If they're ruled by the scripture, we'll eventually arrive there. We have this promise in Isaiah, I think it's 58th chapter, that one day Zion shall see eye to eye, which is generally interpreted that we will get doctrinal unity one day. But what we need before that point is organic unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. So God tests our character first before he gives us doctrinal clarity. Uh, this is just his condition. He, he's not going to put dynamite in the hands of babies. He wants us to grow up to the full maturity and stature of Christ. And as that process evolves, uh, then we will see, as a result of that growth, doctrinal issues being resolved. The church had to figure out Christology. That took five centuries. We had to figure out justification. That took till the Reformation. We're fighting other battles now about uh, uh, creation and the authority of Scripture. Eschatology is likely to be the very last uh, locus of system, systematic theology that will be resolved. Uh, that's why it's kind of harmful when people start their uh, Christian walk talking about eschatology almost exclusively and usually in a, in a sensationalistic way. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that they're looking through the wrong end of the telescope, and this distorts their notion of what is biblical. Uh, and also because once you take the sensationalistic route, uh, it's very, very hard to continue to feed that need for something like that. The other problem with postmillennialism, of course, is that when I talk to particularly a pre-mill, but sometimes an amill as well, I'm telling them, you're going to die and be gathered to your fathers. You're not going to be raptured out of here in the next day or two. Uh, no one that that event is going to ha has some prerequisites to it and we're nowhere near the prerequisites to have death destroyed and mm -hmm. uh, and the people then living uh, not able to die and the, the Christ's children uh, being released from from death that has yet to happen and it's not going to happen until every other enemy is destroyed first um, so at that point, I'm kind of taking people's candy away, their hope that they're going not, not going to die. And this is promised by Hal Lindsey. This is the generation that will not die. You will not necessarily die. And that's a very, very tempting thing to, to be delivered from death. Uh, unfortunately, it is uh, bad for our character. We should be willing to lay our lives down for Christ rather than rejoicing that we won't die. I think it creates a very shallow form of discipleship. Any event, the upshot is, uh, Warfield represented a very, very strong form of the post-millennial position. And then what happened after he passed away, uh, one of these scholars who looked at him said this, said, the only way to deal with so strong a protagonist is to ignore him. And mm. that's exactly what has happened. He's been ignored. He's been thrown out of the discussion of eschatology. One of the more peculiar ways in which he's ignored is that he's misrepresented. Uh, in my opinion, this occurs in one of Dr. Gary North's book, Dominion and Common Grace, where he has a chapter about Warfield's vision of victory. 
And he talks about what appears to be Dr. Warfield's vision of victory, but never mentions that Warfield holds to the idea that there's no final apostasy and every single human being will eventually be saved who's alive on this earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he says, you know, uh, nobody accepts this idea of a final victory. He said, of course, it's, 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 it's not what Revelation this 20 says. It's not what this passage says. It's simply not true. Well, and then he said maybe 1% of Christians or 0.1% of Christians uh, might uh, or post mills believe that there's no final apostasy. Well, he should have mentioned that uh, he was putting in a whole chapter devoted to Mr. 0.1% himself, <laughs> Benjamin Warfield. See, so I think truth in advertising would have been helpful. The way I put it when I reviewed the book was you should have called this chapter Warfield's Vision of Victory Found and then quickly reburied because he doesn't do it justice. So I think one of our missions at Chalcedon is at least to give do justice, to represent a Christian scholar accurately, and then compare it against Scripture and say, does it hold water? Why did he hold it to this position? Why would such a strong Christian scholar, a biblical scholar, take a position that he knew people were likely to be skeptical about, primarily because we walk by sight and not by faith? Uh, but he did, and he defended it, and I think he did a remarkable job. Unfortunately, Dr. Warfield's material is scattered all over the place because he was what's known as an occasional theologian. When a need arose, he wrote, and therefore his material is scattered over a whole bunch of volumes, and some of them have yet to be reprinted. It's not all available on the Internet. So what we really need is a strong eschatological uh, presentation of his views. When we have books about Warfield, and I have quite a few here, you know, um, like by uh, Reverend Fred Zaspel, he omits any discussion of Warfield's eschatology. Uh, hmm. From what I can tell, I think maybe just the briefest, one, one or two sentences. Uh, and we're not seeing, therefore, the theology of Warfield in the book that has this kind of title. And he doesn't mention Dr. Warfield's position on theonomy either, which is remarkable because Dr. Warfield's theonomy is actually more consistent and stronger than Bonson's. So when we lack these things because we don't know of of these articles that uh, and these expositions of scripture, this really exegesis we're talking about, that Warfield conducted, uh, I think we're deprived of the strong discipline of the past. I'm actually quoting uh, Warfield, quoting someone else, I think Dubois, on that point. When we're deprived of it, we operate in ignorance. Uh, it's like there arose a, a king that knew not Mo, um, Abraham, right, uh, or Joseph. That's what the, page, the book of Exodus starts with this notion that there arose a king, a pharaoh that knew not Joseph. <laughs> and so, too, we, here's a generation that rises up knowing not Warfield. And what Warfield they get is predigested, and they're directed away from his eschatology and his theonomy. Or if it's mentioned, they say, of course, he was wrong. Uh, and that is not... Scriptural. That's what's called casual or cavalier dismissal. We have a great book out there by D.A. Carson called Exegetical Fallacies. It came out in 84. I think it's been reprinted since with a new edition. But he points out that uh, casual dismissal is when you, it looks like you're dealing with the position, but you're actually just writing it off and not dealing with it. So if you want to deal with Warfield, you need to actually grapple with this position and go deep. And, and his, uh, those who oppose his view either laugh at it, dismiss it, but no one actually grapples with it. And this is to our lack of credit as Christians that 
a very, very strong biblical scholar who had a lot to say on this matter. Uh, we quote him when it suits us or when he supports our position, uh, but when he doesn't, all of a sudden we lose, uh, we get cold feet. I, for one, don't think we should get cold feet. I think we should probe what he has to say and take it more seriously because when you compare against Scripture, he does very, very well, better than his opposition. And I think that's why one of the reasons we you asked me to speak here today is to go into some of the details about his view of uh, eschatological universalism and the idea that the Great Commission not only will uh, create tremendous progress, but get to the point where no man need teach his neighbor saying no to the Lord, because all men shall know him from the least to the greatest. And that's mm -hmm. everybody. So besides... So the system of eschatological universalism, besides disagreeing with, let's say, Bonson's postmillennialism, just call it that for the sake of mm. brevity, uh, besides disagreeing with the final apostasy, um, what other uh, differences are there? Uh, obviously, passages in Scripture that allegedly teach a final apostasy have to be dealt with. Uh, and so then when we look at the various sections of Scripture, uh, we then confront those passages. Now, I find this very interesting because uh, the flip side rarely happens. No one is interrogating folks for evading so many passages that speak of a total victory, total victory. Uh, and that to me is stunning. So they put the burden of proof on the Warfield view saying, uh, how can there possibly be that? How do you explain these little things? And so... Uh, we are confronted with the fact that in order to overcome resistance to the idea of total victory, we have to actually then go through the so-called uh, alleged negative passages, and sure they're not negative, that they're in fact consistent with the uh, with Warfield's picture. So that's where it is. By the way, Bonson himself, when asked about this, simply said Warfield was wrong; he was an error. So <laughs> that's about as far as he went with it, because he had already—he was actually so convinced of his own approach to the Book of Revelation, which he adopts what's known as the Augustinian interpretation, mm, okay. uh, and, and that's—and uh, that's why he gets that idea that the millennium is uh, spans the inter-advent period uh, on Earth and uh, ends with the final apostasy. So he reads all those things as a literal sequence of chronological events. Uh, and that's mm. and so he believes that exegesis rules a day in this case. In actual fact, we can show that not even exegesis uh, necessarily points in the direction he says, and he's uh, omitting all the parallel passages inside the Book of Revelation that help explain that passage and set it in its proper context. Yeah. So as we kind of round the bend into that um, actual in interpretation, uh, you know, one of those things as as you're talking about the um the belief in the the final apostasy you know even in our interactions uh jeremiah and i as we've discussed this with a lot of uh pre predominantly pre-mill um thought is you know you, you say oh i believe that um history is a, a, a gradual um trending upward uh we're moving towards uh total victory that christ is purifying his church um, that he's he's moving on and and this this idea of the you know the stone that was cut without hands that grows and becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth the the mustard seed that's planted into the ground that becomes a, a tree that fills the garden leaven in the, the lump um, all of those things and, and we point to those passages um, and 
we always, you know, the, the general pushback is, yeah, but what about these, um, these passages of, um, you know, in the last days, men will be lovers of themselves, greedy, um, you know, and, and the list goes on, um, as Warfield kind of puts it and, and deals with it as well. Yeah. We have to, we have to deal with enemies. Um, and, and some of it is dealing with, uh, a short, short-term view of history. You know, that idea of being raptured out of here at any second, um, versus long, long-term we have, uh, work to do. Um, Warfield is looking at things being, um, there is a growth to the church. And so his, his interpretation there of um, Revelation 20 um, it is a little bit different than, um, than the definitely premillennial, but uh, also most postmillennial thought. Well, it's a lot different from both of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you would, uh, can you kind of share with us what, it, what is the, the, the framework there of how, um, uh, where Warfield differs on his interpretation of uh, Revelation 20 and the, and the millennium right. versus the, the little season. Right. And the first thing we should say is, where does he get his view of victory if not from Revelation 20? And hmm. He believes Rome, Romans 11 is crystal clear in this regard. Verse 25, 26 imports nothing less than all the Gentile nations coming in, and then the Jewish nation, the Israel, genetic Israel, more accurately, coming in after every single Gentile is saved importing nothing less, as he says, than a worldwide salvation, no man lacking. And that means that Paul is riffing on the predictions in Isaiah 19, verses 18 to 25, where the enemies of Israel, Egypt, and Assyria are completely healed and become uh, converted, and they build altars to God and serve him and swear unto him and perform oaths to him. Uh, and then Israel is the third part. So we have the enemies first, Egypt, Israel, Assyria, uh, and then Israel is the third, last, and that's the exact sequence of events. Egypt and Assyria represent the Gentile nations that come in first with partial blindness on Israel, and then the partial blindness of Israel is lifted, and they become the final caboose of history. He also sees victory in 1 Corinthians 15, which is clear enough. Uh, so he didn't need Revelation 20 to talk about victory, because he believes that whole passage is misunderstood. What we have when we um, uh, with Christ is something that goes all the way back to Isaiah 11. Uh, we, we know that's a post-millennial passage, but it begins talking about the Messiah and his attributes. And one of the things that he does is, in verse 4, he slays the wicked with the breath of his lips. Death is in his power and control. That's something that's going to be distinctive about this Messiah, that he takes control out of, de of death. And we see this also in Revelation 1.18. He has the keys of hell and death. He has been given the control over death. And so it is not something that is loose canon that just happens to happen. He's completely in control of it. That's why he can actually uh, threaten Jezebel's children. He says, I will kill her children with death. Interesting language there in Revelation 2.10, or rather 2.23, rather uh, Revelation 2.23. So when we look at the passages in, throughout the book of Revelation, we actually see parallels, and I think these parallels are important. Uh, they are not running sequentially in time. These are separate visions, and they're very similar to visions by Isaiah or uh, Zechariah, where they look at the same thing from different aspects. Warfield was of their mind that the uh, book of Revelation actually is in seven sections, each one which covers the period between the advents, uh, and each of them, when each of those divisions ends in total victory. 
some of them are very clear. You look at Revelation 11, 15, you know, behold, all the nations of the world have become, uh, or kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of the Lord and his Christ. That's all of them. There's no nation that isn't Christian and isn't Christianized and doesn't belong to him and over which he doesn't rule completely and totally. That's uh, one of the obvious ones. But there's some ones that are not so obvious. Um, but they exist, and they're in, and they're there. We just tend to read Revelation in such a wooden way that we miss it. Puritans didn't miss it. If you read John Owen on Revelation 17, he talks about uh, the conversion of the world in that passage. Well, where, are they? where on earth is it? Well, we are so blinded to it that we are surprised when we read Owen's exposition of it. But once you read it, you say, well, there it is. It's right there. Sometimes chapter breaks create problems. One of the victories is uh, in Revelation 8.1. Well, what's that verse talk about? Oh, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. Why, why is that a victory? Because the reason that heaven is a noisy place is that the wrath of God is booming against the, the earth. The prayers of the saints go up and judgment comes down. Why is it suddenly quiet for half an hour? And this is actually in the middle of the, of the vision. Here is John, uh, the beloved disciple, suddenly in the middle of the day on Patmos, in the vision, half an hour, nothing, absolutely, absolutely nothing happens. That's a good part of the day during which he's receiving the vision. It's absolutely peaceful, quiet. Heaven has quieted down. God is not rising up out of his place. Why? Because there is no more uh, individuals on the world by where he has to pour his wrath down. Because we are informed in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. Here's a whole half hour where there's nothing going on because everything's at peace. It's peace that passes through understanding. So they're all there, but we don't tend to read them well. So in the same token, when we get to Revelation 6, we see the man on the white horse riding forth. Warfield and others say that's the same guy as Revelation 19.11. The man on the white horse is Christ or the cause of Christ, depending on how you want to look at it. And behind this man writing are death dealing. Uh, you know, we have war, famine, and death behind him. And then we see disembodied souls in verse 9 under the altar. Now that's exactly what happens in Revelation 20, disembodied souls. And most of Revelation 19 is taken up with death after, as a result of the guy on the white horse riding out to conquering uh, with a sword proceeding out of his mouth. Again, the notion of slaying the wicked with the breath of his lips. So death is under Christ's control, and he's the author, if you will, of it, the controller of it. It's in his fist. He has the keys of it. And both these passages, therefore, are parallels. Revelation 6, 9 to 11, speaks about the same thing that has been talked about in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6 and beyond. So that's an important first cue. And in that period of time, there's something that's going on in Revelation 6. It's mentioned in verse 11. He says, you know, that uh, when the saints are given their white linen robes, they tell they must wait for a microchron on a little time, a tiny time, uh, while their brethren and those who witnessed uh, said they are fulfilled. They need to be fulfilled. It's not their number just to be fulfilled. And this is where exegesis comes in. The word arithmos, where we get arithmetic, the word number in Greek, does not appear in Revelation 6.11. Now, translators and and Commentators try to insert it, inject it, force fit it in there and say their number must be. In fact, I just looked at three major commentaries that are current today, and they all talked about the number of those who have to still be killed. That word is not there. And it's not there because 
it was not said by John. It is absent for a reason, because the word there, plerososi, is in the sense of fulfilling or completing a race, finishing a race. It's the same concept that Paul talks about, you know, to run the, the race and fight the good fight. It's the completion. All, they said, you are not going to be avenged until all your brothers have also run their race, have ful been fulfilled too, like you have, have been faithful unto death like you have been. So the little season, the microchronon there is the same event, the same thing that's going on in Revelation 20 and in Revelation 12. I want to speak a little bit about Revelation 12 before we get to 20, because it's also a parallel to Revelation 20. My contention is, and Warfield and Milligan and others say the same thing, you can't understand Revelation 20 until you understand Revelation 6 and Revelation 12, because Revelation 20 puts together all the things that are going on there in a final vision. In Revelation 12, we see uh, Satan being ejected from heaven, and he's been given prior to that point, in earlier in chapter 12, a time times in half a time, three and a half years, if you will. This is a symbol, a broken seven, that is used to describe the time frame in which, or the sphere, I like to call it sphere, the time frame, but it's still it's the same thing, uh, that the devil operates. And he is cast out of heaven to the earth, into the earth, literally. And it says he's full of wrath because he knows he only has a short time. Here's this concept of a short time again. Short time is the same meaning as it is in Revelation 6.11. The short time is the time during which the saints on earth live their lives, confront the devil, conquer and defeat the devil, if you will, in their daily walk, and taking every thought captive to the beings of Christ, and then they're finally faithful unto death and called into glory, at which point they join the saints who in heaven with the white and are given their white linen robes, etc., etc. So the devil, who used to be allowed in heaven, is ejected from heaven. So now the only place that he has is the surface of the earth, and he can only deal with the living. He can no longer confront angels or saints in heaven. This is important because in Job 1, where is the devil? He's there telling God, does Job fear you for nothing? And skin for skin, if you uh, touch his body and, and make him sick and, and, and in pain, he'll curse you to your face. So here we have the accuser of the saints, the brethren, in heaven in Job 1. And the same thing happens in Zechariah 3, 1 and 2. There is the devil. He is accusing Joshua the high priest. And the, the angel of the Lord says, the Lord rebuke thee. So he's present there as a, as a figure. So the, one of the questions that has arisen is, when the saints go to uh, be with the Lord in heaven, is the devil also going to be there? Do we still have to fight him there? Answer, no. The devil has been thrown out of heaven. He's been permanently ejected from there. He only has that little season, the sphere in which we leave our, live our lives. And this is an important symbol too, my friends, because the scriptures talk for, for all the time about how our life is a brief vapor. And Paul makes a comparison between the life we're living now versus what's to come. And I think this includes the notion of going into the intermediate state of dying in our soul being with Christ. Um, because when, our, when we leave our body to be with Christ, when we die, uh, there is peace, but there also is no devil. It is a devil-free zone because the devil is only allowed to act here on the surface of the earth. And that's what's being described in this passage. So the devil is angry because he only has the little season to deal with. He only has people who are alive. 
Each of us has our own little race to run. And the way that Paul puts it, he says, I don't consider the present troubles worthy to be compared to the exceeding weight of glory to come. This is both appears in Romans uh, 8.18, but also in 2 Corinthians, uh, was it the fourth chapter? No, yeah, fourth chapter. And in the 17th verse, he specifically says this. He talks about the this, this short, brief time of trouble now and probation that we all live. That's the little season is not worthy to be compared to the exceeding weight of glory to come. And then he actually contrasts right after that, the very next verse, the difference between the things that are, the temporal things that we see versus the unseen eternal things that where the weight is, where the big thing is. So what better way to describe things that are glorious and weighty than to use the symbol of a thousand years compared to a short period of time, compared to a little season, compared to a three and a half years? Isn't it interesting in... Daniel 9.27, that we pick up the idea that the Messiah's activity is only three and a half years, and he's cut off in the middle. All of us are going to be cut off. Uh, we will pass, uh, unless we're the very last generation, we will die, uh, and we will be leaving this, this present body, and our soul will be, be taken up into heaven, where we will join the heavenly throngs, where we become part of the cloud of great witnesses, etc., etc. And that's depicted under the picture of the thousand years where Satan is not allowed. That's the thing that's distinctive about it. We're setting two symbols against each other. And they're not really supposed to be chronological. They're spheres. Uh, the idea that the little season uh, follows the millennium is incorrect. Uh, even the word used is uh, for that was translated after that, he's released for a little season, uh, is the word meta, which more properly can mean amid or in the midst of. In other words, if you're breathing air right now, you're in a little season. In fact, that's the, what Milligan says. He says, most people look, what people are looking for in the thousand years is actually to be found in the little season. We are all of us living here in the world in the little season uh, during which fire is pouring down from heaven onto the earth, destroying all the wicked. We are living during the period of time when the wicked are completely destroyed by the fire from heaven. Now, that also is a symbol of God's providential wrath being poured out. It is in symbolic form what Paul says when he says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. The throne visions in Daniel 7 show a stream of fire pouring down from the throne of God onto the earth. Even the uh, picture in 2 Chronicles 34, verse 21, says, Great is the wrath of the Lord that's poured out upon us. The literal Hebrew is, Great is the glowing fire of the Lord that's poured out upon us. So it's translated as wrath or rage. And you can see that it's symbolized by fire, even in that choice of wording. Uh, and that's what we were. So the very passage that we say, oh, there's the defeat of the church, is the victory of the church. Verses 7, 8, and 9 of Revelation, that's where we're living in. We're living in that period of time during which the fire from heaven is being poured out. And this is no different than John the Baptist teaches in Matthew 3, 11, and 12. So he'll baptize you with fire the Holy Spirit, and fire, and he will thoroughly purge the threshing floor. It's a very important word, diakatharizo, completely purge the threshing floor. Micah tells us the threshing floor is where all the nations are. So the Messiah, his winnowing hand is, fan is in his hand, and he will completely purge the threshing floor, driving away the shaff, like the wind of the th summer threshing floors. You actually appealed to the passage in Daniel 2 about the stone cut without hands. What happens to all those nations and the pieces of them? They're consumed and then the chaff is driven away, just like Psalm 1. 
The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that's driven away by the wind. So we have actually a doctrine of chaff in Scripture to boot. But going back to Revelation 20, we're not talking about two different things that happen uh, next to each other. And it's a very, very different thing is that the little season is the same thing in Revelation 6.11 as it is in 12.12 as it is in Revelation 20. It's the period of time where we're on earth. Everything else is disembodied souls. You see, that's the time during which you and I are able to sit with Christ. Remember, he says, he who overcomes is faithful unto death. I will give with him to sit with me in my throne. Uh, and that is what's promised early in the opening of Revelation. So when we get to the thrones of Revelation 20, those are still disembodied souls. It even says, it says, I saw the souls of them that were beheaded. I didn't see them. I saw the souls of them. And that's what we see also in Revelation 6. I saw the souls of them. Same scene, just if the slightly different emphasis. The emphasis there is, again, uh, a sequence from death to the intermediate state. It makes sense because in Revelation 6, we start with Christ conquering, death, uh, instrumentalities of death, three, three horsemen behind the white guy and the white horse, and then the intermediate state, and then the mention of the little season, during which who's going to be running their race? Everyone's still alive. It says, we're not going to uh, take care of you until all the men still alive run their race, and they're complete, and they are fulfilled. Uh, they get the cross the finish line too. And we don't have to play any monkey games by saying, well, let's just hammer the word arithmos into the text of Revelation 6, even though it's not there. Warfield contended for purity in our exegesis. Don't play games. Take the scripture as it stands written. And when we actually use the correct word there for fulfilled, plerisosi, we see that's a whole bunch of cross-references in the writings of Paul and John. And for that matter, even in the Gospels, in Luke. So some attention being paid to the words that are used in the book of Revelation would be really smart, in my opinion. You know, he has wisdom, right? <laughs> Let him reckon things. And I think the way to reckon best is to be mindful of this. So Warfield's position is pay attention to what the Revelation itself is saying. And I think it's the only position that actually pulls all its doctrinal ideas from inside the book of Revelation. It doesn't go external or find other ideas from other theologians or uh, uh, try to piece together uh, obscure passages of the Old Testament to make a fit, force fit. It actually says all these symbols have already been discussed earlier in the book sequentially. So when the ideas introduced in Revelation 6, we should still bear it in mind when we get to Revelation 12, which talks about Satan's relationship to the earth, that he's been thrown down to the earth and uh, no longer, and he's barred from heaven. It's kind of an interesting reversal then in, uh, when you get to Revelation 20. What did Satan try to do to Christ? He tried to put him in the abyss, put the body in, the, in that tomb, and seal him up. Put away that Son of God once and for all. And what happens in Revelation 20? The reverse thing. Satan is thrown out of heaven, and he's sealed away from heaven. The very thing that he was very, very happy about, being that he could go and attack the saints directly to God's face, no longer possible, because there is now a comforter and an advocate for us that we didn't have uh, prior to that point. And so the whole point there is that heaven is a Satan-free zone, and we live here in the little season, and the day we breathe our last, we enter the millennium. The idea that the millennium is a period of time between the advents uh, is problematic for another reason. Most people don't catch this, but a Calvinist would have a hard time with this because when you say, well, the sense in which 
uh, Satan is bound is that he doesn't he just doesn't prevent the gospel from being successful. Well, the second you put uh, the gospel success in the, uh, and make it contingent on the created order, any element of the created order, including Satan's status, that means the created order determines it, and that is not Calvinistic. That's the whole linchpin of Arminian thinking that the created order is a determinative order, not the election of God. And so that's a dangerous thing, because that means that when Satan is loosed, then the gospel falls on hard time. It's no longer the power of God unto salvation. It's subject to Satan's status. This is a dangerous position, in my view, and is completely inconsistent. And it's kind of surprising that it was Augustine who voiced it first. He, I think he should have known better than to put forth a theory that makes the gospel success contingent on create the creatures that is uh, designed to uh, bear upon. So there's a lot here going on. Uh, I think I've opened this up, and so we can certainly go into some of your questions since I've kind of uh, took advantage of the, the silence here and dominated the discussion. Well, no, thank you very much. That's oh. that's a good intro into Revelation 20. Um, so just to repeat some back to you so that you can affirm and then I can ask questions. So basically, Revelation 6 and Revelation 12 show that Satan is loosed on the earth at the same time that the disembodied souls are reigning in heaven. And then you interpret Revelation 20 in light of those passages and say, therefore, we can't say that Revelation 20 is saying that uh, Satan is not. You can't say that it's not a simultaneous uh, sequence of events going on here. It has to be simultaneous in light of Revelation 6 and Revelation 12. Is that the uh, scripture interpret scripture argument here? Right. I think that that's the whole point. When we talk about what is the analogy of Scripture, who's doing justice to the concept of using the analogy of Scripture? Here, Warfield is, is doing exactly that. He says, what is the analogy of Scripture inside Revelation? In other words, he's looking at the intra-apocalyptic parallels and doing justice to them. He's not ignoring them. When we play the kind of games that we hear commonly with Revelation 20, we are outright ignoring it and burying anything that Revelation 6 has to say and Revelation 12 has to say, even though they both use the exact same concept, uh, in fact, in one case, the exact same words, uh, for the, you know, the micron chronon or the chronon micron. Uh, the words are inverted in Revelation 6, but that's simply because of the, uh, the context there. Slightly different language, but the same concept used in Revelation 12. Same effect used. He is thrown out of heaven, and therefore he only has the little season to operate in. Uh, the brief season. And that's why he's angry. He was tossed out of heaven. It's not that he's angry that he's um, has only, because uh, he's been operating now for 2,000 years since Christ came. The three and a half year symbol represents that entire broken time. Each one of us runs a, a little season in our own right, and each of us uh, collectively as the church militant run that same period of time. So what Warfield is saying is, there's two kinds of eschatology. There's personal eschatology, what happens to you personally, and there's cosmic eschatology, what's going on in the large, over the centuries, progress. And essentially what's going on with Revelation 6, 12, and 20, it's showing us how these two things harmonize, how personal eschatology, our status, harmonizes. And it's interesting to me that the Bible is concerned with this. this these the facts were given to us as a comfort. It's a comfort to us that there's heaven heavenly fire pouring out continually until the wicked are destroyed. 
because this alleged apostasy in Revelation 27, verse 27, is no small little thing. It says that uh, the hordes of Gog and Magog uh, uh, come over the breadth of the entire earth to encompass the camp of the saints. This is no minor setback. This is complete and total. But see, seen as a picture of, of what's going on between the advents on earth, it's very, very different. It's actually almost can, and can be taken more literally too for that matter. The fire, the wrath of God is destroying the ungodly. It's just like John the Baptist said. He's baptizing the world with his Holy Spirit and fire. The Spirit is God is being poured out upon all flesh, not some flesh or most flesh, all flesh. So when the Spirit is done, then there'll be no human being whose spirit, who has not had the Spirit of God poured out upon him because he was elect. And the engine behind Warfield's view, we have to say, is divine election. We don't attribute it to great preaching, <laughs> and uh, we don't attribute it to uh, seeker-sensitive churching. It's all because in God's electing grace, he has chosen in advance what's going on. By the way, that's probably the best explanation for the, one of the other negative passages that's alleged against Warfield's view. They say, well, what about the parable of the wheat and tares? Aren't there always going to be tares in the field? And the answer is absolutely not. You see, that picture that's being depicted there, we need to pay attention to the details. Why is it that the angels are not allowed to touch a tear. They're told that you can actually tear out wheat. How does that happen? Because the, we're actually supposed to be looking at this through time. You see, uh, Tira was uh, Abraham's father. If you take out Tira, Abraham's not born. We're told in the book of uh, Hebrews 7 that uh, Abraham was in Levi's, or rather Levi was in Abraham's loins. So when Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek, Levi is the one paying the tithes. So we have an interesting situation here where a lot of these tares of these wicked, unregenerate men have elect offspring, regenerate offspring coming down the pipe. And that is the reason you don't actually pull out the tares. So there's actually two different destinies for a tear in the wheat in the field, which is the world. One, they're going to have regenerate offspring. They're going to give rise to wheat in the subsequent generations. Or two, according to Psalm 37 and Psalm 109, verse 14, their uh, posterity is wiped out in the next generation and their name is blotted out. So they have, and this happens with certain people anyway, where they have no um, progeny. So either they, their genetic line stops or it gives rise to elect offspring. And so when you look at the parable of the wheat and tares and see that it actually talks about the protensive aspect, the aspect through time, we see that it actually the logic is that at the end of history, everything will be all wheat, no tares left, because of the exact reason that the angels are forbidden from touching a tear. You will actually pull out wheat when you pull out a tear, or the tear will have no offspring, which, but most of them are going to have regenerate offspring. That's why you don't touch the tares. The tares have an interesting uh, aspect to them. I don't know how far back you gentlemen trace your family line, but I'm sure you're going to, most of us find unregenerate people behind us, you know, parents or grandparents or great grandparents. Yeah. And, and lo and behold, here we are, we talking, though we came from tares. Well, this is God's doing, right? He, uh, he proclaims his deliverance to a people not yet born, according to Psalm 22. So this is a wonderful thing. So far from being a negative, the parable of the wheat and tares, when you actually look at what's going on in Psalm 37 and Psalm 109, 
it's not a negative passage. It doesn't say we're always going to be uh, encumbered. In fact, the opposite is true. Uh, we're not going to have chaff encumbering the threshing floor. We're not going to have trouble with uh, unregenerate people being a problem in the future. They are operating on borrowed time. Um, yeah, I have a my uh, I work for a Christian company, um, and they they send out a, a morning devotional every morning. And a couple of weeks ago, they sent out um, John MacArthur's devotional from um, from the parable of the wheat and the tares. And his his basic conclusion comes down to at the end at the end of it all, um, the the uh, um, the wheat field is so overrun with tares that there's no there, there's hardly any wheat left. Um, and, and he, you know, he, he's using it kind of to defend a, um, a final apostasy, um, and that God's going to sort it out in the end to, to, um, endure through the, the difficult times where I think it, it takes the, um, Jesus point through the, the parable as you're talking about it. It's like, it, it ends up pointing out the exact opposite of what a, a commentator looks at like that. If you look through Ezekiel, where we, the angels make a mark on who's going to be taken out and who stays, or, or even the Passover. The angels are not stupid, and they're not incompetent. They don't need to be micromanaged. <laughs> they know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. But they're told not to touch them because they're going to take out tares at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, until we actually take the—there's only one reason given not to take them out. You will take out tares. That's why you're not allowed to touch—I mean, you'll take out wheat. That's why you cannot touch the tares. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've heard all sorts of evasions. Oh, God is interested in historical process being preserved. No, he's not. He's interested in preserving wheat and preventing it from being aborted or destroyed before it's born. That's what's going on. And that is exactly what we see in Scripture. And this also does justice to the passages in Scripture that say the wicked, you're not going to be able to find them. Psalm 37, the very one we quote about the meek inheriting the earth also we see David saying, I diligently sought the place of the wicked and could not find him. He's looking. Where are they? There are no more wicked around encumbering mm -hmm. the ground. You see, this is what Hebrews teaches, right? When uh, Christ is set on the right hand of power and authority, he says, henceforth expecting until all his enemies are made his footstool. He doesn't leave the throne until there are no enemies left on earth. The tares are all gone. They've all led to wheat being born, regenerate men being born. This is also, by the way, the teaching in Psalm 87, taken literally. That passage talks about where God is bragging on Rahab, which is Egypt, and Babylon being mm -hmm. knowers of me. He says, and it's translated poorly. People say, well, this man and that man is born in Zion. The actual reading, and it's translated correctly in Esther 1.8, is each and every man is born in Zion, is born in her. Mm -hmm. So it's talking nothing about nothing less than a total uh, victory at the end of time, where Zion embraces every human being that's standing, that's breathing air. And that's the beauty of uh, the eschatological position, because that goes back to um, Genesis 12, 3. All the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth shall be blessed in Abraham. Not some, not most, not temporarily, but all the ones then at that point of time. And we're, and we're moving toward that, despite what we see. I mean, if you go walk by sight, I grant that things look miserable. Things look pretty miserable after Christ was laid in the tomb, too. So what? That just reflects on my lack of faith, not on Scripture. That was, God, it was it Abraham Kuyper that said, um, the kingdom of God goes from victory to victory, each one cleverly disguised as, a, as defeat? Right. Uh, Neander said that everything that attempts to uh, 
slow down the progress of God's kingdom in actual effect inadvertently furthers it and pushes it forward. So um, it's interesting how you say that about Revelation 20 because it becomes, you know, when you're a vanilla postmill and you believe in the final apostasy, at one point in a conversation with a pre-mill, you're using the verse, there shall be no Canaanite in the house of the Lord to defend the fact that the church is going to win. But then when it comes to the final apostasy, you end up having to say, well, most of the house of the Lord was full of Canaanites. We just didn't know it. Uh, But I wanted to ask about the martyrdom and the beheadedness of all the disembodied souls that are are reigning in the millennium, according to eschatological universalism. Uh, Would you, would you say that revelation three clarifies that it's not just the martyrs and those who are beheaded that are, in the millennium, and that is, and that it's also um, just normal Christians. I think we have to see our unity in Christ and with Christ as part and parcel of this. Uh, we are united with a crucified Savior, and so we share attributes with Him at the creaturely level that He bestows graciously upon us. Not that we deserve, and not that elevates us to His level by any stretch. But there's a lot going on there. Uh, let me. I'd like to get, dig into that a little bit deeper. But before we do, let me um, hit something that I think is important regarding this final apostasy. I think that it is in tension with every other passage in Scripture that speaks about the end of the of time, end of history, having no war. See, this is laid out in Isaiah two verse four. They shall, uh, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war evermore. That is talking about the permanent cessation of war, not temporary, permanent. And so that passage is very, very clear. It's the same thing in Psalm uh, 72, it's verse 7. Abundance of peace shall endure until the moon be no more. And of course, we all talk about Isaiah 9, 7. And the increase of peace in his government, there shall be no end upon the throne of David to establish it with justice. Uh, henceforth forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So the idea that there's going to, history ends with the great war, and that's what that is in Revelation 2, 7, 8, and 9, uh, 20 verses 7, 8, 9, if we try to treat it as a literal passage that uh, concludes an earthly millennium, uh, we're in trouble. We have to basically say this little, these three verses in Revelation 20, the most uh, symbolic book of the Bible, the most troubling passage in that book, it now is going to be the dog, uh, the tail that wags the dog, and say now we have to say that Isaiah got that wrong, repeatedly wrong, <laughs> continually wrong, uh, because the truth of the matter is that uh, that uh, history ends with the greatest war of all time. Hmm. Uh, and, and this is problematic. I think Warfield had it right. Isaiah was correct. There shall be no war. So any conclusion that history ends with a war, such as a view of Revelation 20 that leads us to that, is incorrect. We do have, that doesn't mean that the things that are described in Revelation 20, 7, 8, 9 aren't happening, but they're happening now, and they happen until there's no more wrath to be poured out because the uh, the objects of wrath no longer are there. And that's what the purpose is. You know, Christ did come, he said, I didn't come to fling peace upon the earth, the same word as casting pearls before swine. I didn't come to fling peace upon the earth, but a sword. And that's what he's doing. But there's a purpose for that. He's the Prince of Peace, and we get to the peace because he first puts a sword out. Uh, It's needful for us to go through this thing. 
uh, and that's the key. So when we talk about the martyrdom, it's possible that the we, we that there's some translational issues even in Revelation six that have yet to be determined, uh, and I'm actually doing some uh, study on that passage too. Uh, let me see if I can pull that uh, that scripture up in Revelation six. There it is. Okay. Uh, so he was when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under this altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God, for the testimony which they held. Verse 10, they cried with a long voice, How long, O Lord, dost thou not avenge us? Okay. And the right robes were given unto them, verse 11, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, the microchronon, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they should, would be, should be fulfilled. Now that word killed is what's of interest here to me uh, because... Why is it that we're talking? We're seeing these folks that are are dead at all. Well, the reason is because at the opening of Revelation six, we have Christ rolling out, and then uh, war, famine, and death behind him. So it's logical. Once we talk about dead, you know, death, uh, which is in under Christ's command, under His control, used by Him for His purposes, um, to say here are all those folks. And, they, they, and what they're told is that throughout all history, there are folks that are going to have to die as well. Probably for the same reason, because Christ is still writing out, if you will, the cause of Christ is still writing out uh, across the globe. Uh, and they're part of the, the folks that have died. So when the saints die, it's, it's not a uh, because God is angry with us, though we still have to pay the uh, wages of sin, but it's rather it's how he gathers us into his army. When Satan's hordes die, when the enemies of God die, did you know that Satan's army gets weaker? Yet when Christians die, God's army strengthens. Where do we end up? On thrones judging. It's very likely that uh, the passage in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, where it says, Know ye not that you're going to judge angels? is referring to what's going on right now, that when we die, we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ at that point, literally heaven, um, reigning with him, judging angels. I have to tell you this, to judge an angel is the same way you judge anyone else. You need to hear the charges. You need to know their name. You get to, so there we participate with Christ in this process of judging angels, but we don't do it down here because I don't know any angels by name. And if you do, that's a problem. <laughs> I like to know how you found that out. Uh, but once you're in heaven, things are a little bit different. So the saints in heaven actually have, uh, they're active. Yeah, they're resting from one kind of activity, but they are charged with authority in another realm. So God's armies always gets bigger and stronger when people try to kill him. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe Paul uh, George Lucas stole this idea <laughs> uh, for a Star Wars movie. You know, if you strike me down, become more powerful than you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Well, in a sense, that was stolen from Christian premises, and God's army gets stronger. However, when uh, the unregenerate uh, they die, Satan is losing ground. He's continually losing ground over time because he does not have any access to them in any way, meaningful way, shape, or form. His army gets weaker. All he has to work with is the people who are breathing air. Uh, but those who uh, of his hordes that die, they're worthless to him, uh, and they simply are objects of God's wrath and justice thereafter. Uh, everything created for a reason, Proverbs 16, 4 says, even the wicked for the day of, just, of uh, judgment or destruction. So let's get back to the, the idea here is that these, this passage here might actually be saying that uh, the brothers who are about to be killed or, or to be being from killed is odd, odd, odd words here in the Greek, uh, uh 
uh, is something that needs to be taken a look at. And I think once we grasp grapple with it, we might find out that, that we're making assumptions about that that are not true, that in fact it might actually be more natural. Because remember, the whole thing that Warfield and Milligan, who preceded him, are doing, are saying there's actually a very natural way to find parallels to all this throughout the book of Revelation and elsewhere in Scripture. And they're very strong ones. They're not force fits. They work. And so in the same sense here, uh, these these images, these symbols that are laid out, we can parse them. We can see what is being symbolized, what is being depicted. What is the idea behind these things? Uh, and it's like some scholars have said, there's actually a grammar, if you will, and a vocabulary in the symbols of Scripture. And they should not conflict with anything that's didactic. Or as the scholars would say, let the clear interpret the obscure. Too often times with Revelation 20, we let the obscure interpret the clear and throw it away and actually uh, counter the uh, the clear. So when you reference Revelation 6, uh, chapter 8, and it says, the power was given to them over a fourth of the earth uh, to kill with the sword, with hunger, and with death. When it says with death, killing with death, mm. uh, you reference that because that refers to dying of natural means? Uh, well, it, it certainly, it's the same notion that occurs in Revelation 2.23 when he says, I will kill her children with death. Their Christ is the one. So the okay. pale horse is, again, totally under control of Christ, the one on the first horse. So uh, they're all in service to him. By the way, we still see four horsemen uh, in the, the, the quiet little copes of trees in Zechariah's one as well, right? Uh, this is not an imagery that is alien to Scripture, the notion of these four horsemen. I think what we need to take away is uh, the guy on the white horse is the same guy in Revelation 6 as in Revelation 19. And one thing that happens after Revelation 19, where death reigns across the whole globe, everyone dies, is the intermediate state. All of a sudden, then we see the disembodied soul. So we get an explanation. We have a contrast, and it happens here. We see death first in the first eight verses, and then we see disembodied souls, the souls of them who died, whatever the cause might be. So uh, there's a lot to be said here. And the what, and what Milligan says, he says, even if I'm wrong about some of these details, we hope these are encouraging questions and further investigation. What actually happened was nobody investigated this. It just dropped like a rock out of consideration. And so uh, when I talked to uh, Norman Shepard, who, of course, has his own problems with credibility due to things hap that happened after I talked to him in 1981, uh, he said he actually taught Warfield's view at Westminster Seminary. And in fact, far from being uh, a far-fetched idea, it actually had tremendous amount of things to commend it because of the consistency of it. So uh, there you have it that there's value in it if it's taught, but it's not taught. Part of the reason yeah. it's not taught is that we we sometimes have a pre-existing idea of what the book of Revelation is supposed to be, and then that kind of guides and narrates and, and hems us in. And so we turn aside from anything that seems to point in a different direction, even if it creates a more consistent post-millennial perspective which I think is ironic. And the worst of it is when we look at all these passages in the Old Testament that speak about a total victory, we have to toss them out because what? Oh, three verses in Revelation 20 <laughs> compel us to toss out 
hundreds of passages in the Old Testament and the New uh, that speak about total victory. You know, when, yeah. when in, in John 12, just give you that one, John 12, 31, 32, and I, if I be lifted up out of the earth, shall draw all men unto myself. Boy, do we evade and hide from that. But the words are very, very clear. And it's true also for Romans 11, where it says, you know, uh, uh, all shall be saved. All Israel will be saved. All of the Gentiles shall come in and all Israel will be saved. And the, and people try to evade it. And I, I was I liked the way that the German exegete Meyer looked at this. This was in the 19th century. He says, uh, all these other theories that try to equivocate and evade the full force, he says, of this te text, he says, uh, they, they have these theories on dogmatic, dogmatic considerations, like Luther and the Reformers try to get rid of it. He says, uh, and their views, he said, against which the clear and simple words do not cease to offer resistance. In other words, the, the passage there in Romans 11.26 cannot be evaded. It is too straightforward and simple. You can't just simply say, oh, it's a modal interpretation. No, it's not. In fact, even more to the point, uh, what is happening? we've misunderstood what happens when Israel does come in. What happens then? Well, we're told in Romans eleven to 15, right? If the casting away of them be uh, riches to the Gentiles, what would their ingrafting be but life from the dead, right? Mm -hmm. Zeos uh, ek ne uh, necros. So, so that actually, as some scholars have properly, I think, talked about, it's called the proper interpretation. It's talking about the general resurrection. That is, the, the destruction of death occurs after Israel comes in. Hmm. And let's add, finally, since I broached the topic of Warfield's view of theonomy, it's also post-millennial, because he took the position that I was to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that prayer is not complete until God's will is being done by everyone in, on the earth. Hmm. And he borrows Calvin's position. He says, at that point in time, in the future, uh, all rebellion is extinguished. Everyone is peaceably uh, a Christian and obeying God. Follow Calvin. So what's going on in, Revel in, in, in Matthew 5, 17 and 18? There's a double protasis there, and it's basically saying this, until heaven and earth pass away, one jot and one tittle shall not fail from all until all of them be accomplished. It's saying this is a prediction that one day the law of God will be kept by every single living human being in the world. And it's our, our lack of faith that we can't see it because that's exactly what the literal sense is. Meyer saw it, <coughs> and Warfield saw it, and uh, and it's exe exegetically sound. But guess what? Instead of treating it as it actually stands written, we evade it. We come up with alternate interpretation of these these texts, and we fail to see that not only is God's saving grace to be extended and victorious, but so is sanctification. Because the, God, the law of God was not given to be continually broken a billion times every minute, like it is right now. It was given to be kept, as Warfield said. And one day it'll be kept. But it cannot be kept by unregenerate people, because the first and greatest commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Mm -hmm. So you have to be regenerate to love God. So you can't even keep the greatest commandment without being regenerate. So first, the entire population of the world is regenerated, at that point in time as the Great Commission goes forth, and then the victories of Christ extend into sanctification, the law of God being kept. And so really this passage in Matthew 5.18 is not about the determination of the law or the passing of the law. It's talking about 
what it's going to take for the heaven and earth to pass away. For the heaven and earth to pass away, all the just and tills of the law have to be kept. Mm. They have to be accomplished, realized, walked in. That's what the sense is. That's a different word than in Matthew 5, 17. That's plerosi. This is genetai, heos panta genetai, until all the jots and tittles of the law are kept. Then the heaven and earth can pass away, but not until that point. So we have a long ways to go to get to that victory. First of all, we don't have everyone saved yet. We're some distance away from that. And then the law of God has fallen on hard times because we're all antinomians, and it suits us to be our own gods and our own lawmakers. But all this is, we're all living on borrowed time because whatsoever the Lord hath not planted shall be rooted up, Matthew 15, 13 says. So I am convinced that the promises of God are yea and amen and will not fail. And Warfield had that same kind of vision, and I think it's got a future. More and more people are looking at the passages, grasping what's going on, and seeing that uh, far more scripture makes sense when taken in the literal sense that there's a victory to be had, and it's a total and complete victory. And that's exciting news to me. Yeah. Well, uh, well not to... Not, uh... Maybe we can save the the theonomy topic for another time. But even on that that same note is that I think the the position that you're advocating here for is that the the law of God is being gospel driven, um, and that it's it's transforming every every area of life. You know the, the motto there of the uh, uh, Chalcedon magazine being you know uh, all, all, the word of God for all of life um, to see that that Christ's um, kingdom, His word, is permeating all of life. And I think it wasn't it Rush Dooney who is um, known for saying that we're not, we're not here for uh, revolution. We're here for regeneration. And we, we care about the souls of men and, and building the kingdom of God um, from, from the ground up uh, to see all spheres of, of government and society uh, transformed by the power of the gospel, um, which I think goes back to your, your point with the, the revelation 20 of um, the binding of Satan being a, um, you know, the, it, this is God's work. God is in charge of history. God's in charge of salvation. God's in charge of uh, building his church, building his kingdom uh, to be able to um, to have that total that total victory uh, in the world. Right. So, so can I, go, sorry, go can I uh, go ahead. throw something in and then ask you the, your other question? <laughs> um, so it seems like the, the chronological succession of Revelation 20 um it seems like that argument kind of falls flat on its face. If, if what you say is true, that that meta can also be translated uh, si- simultaneously, not necessarily after. Correct. Uh, so I wanted you to address that some more. Cause that's, that's pretty big. That's kind of like a, that, that's a nail that would be a nail in the coffin of the uh, chronological reading of revelation 20. And then I wanted you to talk about in what way is Satan bound? Cause we have, we have uh, references in the gospel of, uh, Satan being bound and stuff like that. Sure. Now, when I talk about the choice of the preposition there, uh, it is indicative that though it can be translated after, uh, most of the times it's not. And I'm not even sure it hurts uh, Warfield's view if it is translated after, because what he says is time symbols, if you're saying something is outside of something else uh, and you're using time symbols, then you have to put the one thing around the other one. So something before and after the thousand years represents outside the thousand years. So outside the circle of those saints in heaven, uh, Satan continues to work, which is here on the earth. 
So, but still, the comment I made is that there are uh, philological reasons to reconsider that and say perhaps the, the actual term um, uh, can be translated more safely and legitimately, uh, not in terms of chronological succession, but in terms of location and midst, being in the midst or amid the, uh, the thousand years. Because that's what's actually going on. Yeah, the, we know that the intermediate state is simultaneous with life down here. The church triumphant over her heads in heaven exists at the same time that church militant exists down here. So the one exists in the little season and the other exists in the thousand years. Uh, the one exists in a time of brief trouble and the other exists where the exceeding, as a seating weight of glory. So these two symbols are compared in the same way. And like I say, what John's symbols match up with uh, Paul's comparison of our brief uh, momentary tr time of trouble compared to the exceeding weight of glory to come. One is visible and one is not, uh, laid out in 2 uh, Corinthians 4. So, uh, yeah, there's there's a potential authority for this, and it's something I'd like to explore further, uh, because the challenge is always made, why would uh, time, sim what is, how, do, how do these things flow? Because we try to read them literally, but they're symbols. So the question is, what is embodied by the symbol? What is the idea behind the symbol? Uh, and then when we treat the symbols literally, then we have a problem. And one of uh, you gentlemen asked me once, are there any other places in Scripture where uh, a symbol means something different than, than that? And I commented that uh, John makes the comment that uh, it is now the last hour because Antichrist uh, uh, is already here. There are many Antichrists. That's proof that we're living in the last hour. Last hour has been lasting now for 2,000 years. That's the last hour. Um, so clearly it's not chronologically a little last hour. And by the same token, the little season of Satan is what we're living in. Each of us has our own individual little season because we don't live longer than 70 years plus, whatever. Uh, by reason of strength, we live longer. It's going to be a lot of weariness, as Psalm 90 points out, Moses' ideas. So there's a lot to be said for this. Nobody's ever lived to be a thousand years old. However, the saints that have perished in Christ, uh, they've been ruling for 2,000 years already. So, and I think I also mentioned, by the way, there are passages in Scripture where a, a chronological period of time is not to be taken in a literal sense. I mentioned uh, Ecclesiastes 3.11, where uh, the writer says, God set eternity in their heart, but man cannot reach from one end of uh, God's word to the other. How do you set eternity in heart? Eternity is kind of like time span, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But it's not. And the very fact that that word ha'olam is uh, translated sometimes, at least in the Septuagint, as I've set the world in their heart. Well, which is it? Is it eternity or is it a world? I think eternity is probably correct, um, but not because it's chronological, because the thing that's tricky is, it says, I'm putting eternity in man's heart. So obviously, it's not just a period of time or a calendar that's stuffed into our left ventricle. It's, <laughs> it's something more to it than that. And, and, and he's grasping at something. He says, we have this sense of the, of, the, uh, of the eternal because we're made in God's image. But unlike the infinite God, we're finite. And so we have, we're exercised in it, which means we are frustrated trying to figure out the beginning from the end because we can't see it. We're, when you see a little piece of the river, God sees the whole ocean. And that's what's being described there. So God puts the eternity in our heart, but we don't argue and say there's actually a span of an enormous amount of time in our in our hearts uh, physically. It's not literal. 
And so here's another case where scripture uses very wide ranging language. Why is that? Because when we talk about the things of God, it uh, often stretches the power of language to the breaking point. We're very fortunate and blessed providentially that uh, Paul wrote in Greek because he was also breaking the Greek language as he went. And we see some of this also in, uh, in, in John in the Revelation where it's breaking the limits of language. And sometimes we have settled on translation traditions that kind of lock us into something that is not quite correct. Uh, and I, I think the more we open up the, the, the door on that, the better to gain better understanding, to have exegetical certainty, not premised on tradition, but because we've actually been Berean about it and looked back on it and say, was that really correct? Did we render this properly? And there are a whole bunch of things in God's law that are like that too, since we'll leave that for another discussion to the future. Interesting. Uh, so, wow. Yeah, so that eternity in the heart of man thing, I'm still processing that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm still, because that is a, that's a time thing, but he uses it to kind of represent domains. So mm-hmm. it kind of coincides with Revelation 20. So uh, so Satan being bound. Yeah. Um, Why is it mentioned in the Gospels? Yeah. In such a way to su- suggest that Satan is, is bound and that this should then be a, a parallel matchup to the binding and the uh, incarceration of Satan in Revelation 20. And so we should look at the context in the two passages in the Gospel where this is actually mentioned. Why is this brought up? Is Jesus' answer to the charge that he cast out demons by the prince of demons. In other words, that he was in cahoots with the devil, and the only way that he was able to cast out demons was by colluding with the devil. He's really the devil's buddy, and uh, so this is a trick. And Jesus confronts them and says, you know, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Uh, I do not cast them out. He said, you know, uh, you cannot uh, pillage the house of a strong man until you first bind him. So the fact that I'm pillaging his house means I'm not his friend. I've had to uh, restrain him from preventing me because if Satan could, he would have stopped uh, Jesus from removing any demons or, or killing a whole herd of uh, swine by adjuring uh, the demons to depart into them. This was not part of the, Satan's intention at all. So what Jesus is saying is, I have an adversarial relationship with Satan. We're not friends. In fact, we couldn't be any farther apart in our position. Uh, and the way he proves it is, say, is this imagery says you cannot uh, pillage and uh, take the spoils from the rich man's house or from the strong man's house unless he's been tied up first. Otherwise, he's going to uh, grab his club and hit you. And so, uh, but this is what Christ is asserting in the two places in the gospel, that he is not in cahoots with the devil. Far from it. He says, I'm pillaging the devil's property, all these folks that were in bondage to him. I refer to the listener to Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, where the writer there talks about how Jesus liberates those who through fear of death, all their lives were in bondage to the devil. This is what Christ came to alleviate, to release them from, to give them liberty from all these oppressions and uh, demon possessions, etc. So it's very, very important to see the context. Now, Jesus did talk about passages like the the devil uh, dropping like or falling from heaven like lightning. Uh, Those things, I think, have a little bit of a stronger thing. But again, where is he falling? From heaven to the earth. And so this is the whole point that... Satan is ejected from heaven 
as a result of Christ's work. And uh, that's not the same thing as a binding. By the way, nor did, nor did Jesus say in any of the Gospels, and uh, bind him so that the uh, he doesn't deceive anybody. No, it's not a matter of deception at all. This is simply, I'm, I'm pillaging Satan's property here, alleged property, taking all these uh, uh, people and delivering them from the bondage of the devil and his demons. Uh, and the only way I could do that is if it was against his will that I'm doing it. Hmm. So uh, that's why I say you cannot go and do the kind of thing I'm doing uh, being his buddy, you know, he would be fighting me tooth and nail to block this. So you want to take a strong, stuff from a strong man, he's got to be uh, tied up so you can do it. So he's indicating that the only way in an earthly sense that I, you could pillage someone's property is to take him out of the picture. And that's basically what he's doing. I'm, I'm, there's nothing that uh, the devil can do uh, when Christ gives the command. When he tells the legion, he says, leave him, that's the, that's the end of it. So Christ has power over them, and uh, that—that's I think the key to the passage. But in so you're, you're, dra you're drawing the the connection there then that the um, the the binding of the strong man in the house is really um, not so much a, a a tie to Revelation twenty as that he can't he can't do anything anymore, but as Jesus invading history and 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 wiping out his adversaries. Right. He's showing right. that he's at, he is in opposition to the devil. I'm not his buddy. I'm the guy who made life miserable for him. So uh, I think that's an important aspect of this entire picture uh, that's being given here. Yeah. By Go the on. way, yeah, um, we talk about the binding of, of Satan. Uh, well, you had a question? I maybe take the question first. Well, no, it was kind of a, a shift gears. If you want to, if you want to make that make that point there, right? Yeah. The in what respect is Satan to be bound? Right. And this is where we go back straight to Warfield's position. What's unique about Warfield's position? He teaches that the Great Commission will succeed to the last man standing, with Satan completely unbound the entire time down here. Completely. So there's look at it. If there's an excuse to get the job to fail. The fact that, that Warfield teaches that Satan is unbound on the earth. He's, he's free to uh, do his worst here. Uh, he's the roaring lion that Peter describes. Uh, he's he's, he's uh, an enemy of ours. He's to be resisted. He's obviously present. And we can see that he had, that there's difficulty with the gospel uh, too. But that's simply because uh, that's behind God's behind that, that aspect of it. But here, uh, look at the flip view. If you look at a standard, which you call vanilla post-millennialism, what's distinctive mm -hmm. to the view? Well, Satan's bound. He can't deceive the nations, but we still can't complete that great commission. Mm -hmm. So despite having this advantage, you know, one hand tied behind the back kind of thing for the enemy, <laughs> uh, we still can't get the world converted. Under Warfield's view, the sa Satan is unbound, and we still get victory. With the vanilla post mill, standard post mill that we are used to, uh, which has that amillennial hangover, as Rushdie called it, uh, the church cannot complete the Great Commission, despite the fact that it has this tremendous advantage, alleged advantage, that Satan is bound and cannot stop the church from succeeding. So this doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Which one sounds like victory to you? That that uh, you know, uh, here. The other team, 
we slashed the Qataris on the bus. They didn't make it on the field, and we lose the game anyway. We drew by, <laughs> lost the game. Uh, or they come on the field marching uh, with all their power, and the Qataris triumphs over them. Uh, that, I think, is is uh, uh, more to the notion of victory because he's conquering continually, conquering and to conquer, as the man on the white horse is uh, said to be. So I think our notion of victory is 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 anemic or it's qualified. And I don't think we need, I think we're giving away points to pessimistic uh, eschatologies when we can simply say, no, I'm going to take those promises as written. I'm not going to stagger the promises of God. If, if like I said in a previous podcast with Chalcedon, uh, if Abraham has no trouble thinking that his 90-year-old wife's going to have a kid, then what's our, what's our problem? He stag- right. staggered not at the promises of God. And the promises of God are yea and amen. And so we need to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that requires that everyone be saved. And this is actually what the promise is. And it even boils down to this. We're all familiar with that passage in Philippians 2 about, you know, every knee shall bow, your tongue shall confess that Jesus shall be Lord. But, right. we, but we hear, well, you know, most of those people will be compelled by force to acknowledge that Christ is king. I have news like for you. Day, right? right. You know something? Uh Jesus would not allow the, the demons to give him credit as, as, as uh, the Lord. He, he bid them to shut their mouths because he would not receive that acknowledgement from unclean lips. Mm. And it, it was feigned. It was not real. Wow. See. So. Um, well, yeah, on, on that on that point, and I think that, that helps where, where we kind of wanted to kind of wrap up here on this, this last little uh topic uh, when you when you look at uh christ and his victory and you just mentioned um the the pessimistic view um and i think the view that you're presenting here gives us great optimism uh for the future it gives us the ability to say um yes jesus is he's winning now because i don't know how many times we've encountered it jeremiah uh the encountering the person that says uh if this is the kingdom of god um, and Satan is bound now, then I want no part of it. Like yeah. <laughs> cr- Christians, Christians saying that, right. um, I think that that leads into a, a two part, uh, question, I guess, for you, um, would be the, you know, we go, okay, Christ has to, the premillennial view that says history is getting worse and worse. We're looking at 6,000 plus years of history where Satan has been the, the king of this world. Christ comes, establishes his church. The church is always going to be a persecuted minority, um, Christ comes, binds Satan, and yet there's still unregenerate people on the earth to rebel in a final apostasy. Like, can we really say that that Christ won? And then we take that back to the the Hebrews eight four passage of where he says, "If he were a priest on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there were uh, uh, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law." Um, so, can you kind of address that? You know that yeah. that uh, argument that necessitates Jesus being on earth to rule and to reign. Right. Uh, this follows from Psalm 110, verse 4, that says he's a priest forever, the order of Melchizedek. And in Zechariah 6, 12 and 13, we're told that uh, he shall be a priest upon his throne. So Christ's kingship and his priesthood are tied at the hip, I say. And I'm not the only one saying it. It's actually God saying it in both these places. And in fact, in the Psalm 110, it's basically, it's, I've sworn by myself that thou shalt, thou shalt forever be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So you have God's oath 
affirming it. So if he's always a priest on his throne and his kingship and his priesthood are tied together, then the passage in Hebrews 8, 4 asserts that he cannot be a priest if he's on the earth. So if he's on the earth, if he's not a priest, he's not a king. So there's no right. such thing as Christ being king on earth ruling. And this is what I was getting at with the notion of the oath before. Uh, Philippians passage is not Paul riffing on something brand new. He's quoting from a passage in Isaiah 45, verse 22 and 23, where there's an oath to the effect that all the ends of the earth shall be saved. They're commanded to it, and, and that, that command is issued by God, and then the oath is issued to the effect that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. That follows the command of God that the entire world is to be saved. So here we have God's own oath to the effect that the entire world will one day be completely saved to the last man standing. So when we object to that, whose oath are we mocking? I think this is something that we, we miss. So it's important for us to say, when we look at the passage in Philippians saying, no, nah, this is not anything other than that the world will one day completely, every person living will in fact be bending the knee to Christ and fulfillment of God's own oath, oath that he, when he commanded the entire world, the ends of the world to be saved. This is huge. So, yeah, when you look at the New Testament, check to see if there's not an Old Testament prophecy that's being uh, invoked. In this case, Paul is big on most of these Old Testament prophecies. And the original of that passage makes it very clear that you have a completely saved world in the picture. Right. And and the it it's saddening almost to see the the, the modern church, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, um, if the Old Testament had smallpox, most churches wouldn't catch them. Um, <laughs> that we that we have this this view right now. You know, you know, you read Paul, you read um, these other New Testament books, and don't know the Old Testament well enough to to see the themes being uh, linked together. Yeah, that's that's dangerous because we get a misshapen faith. I would think that a balanced view would be you spend three quarters of your time in the Old Testament, because what we are supposed to teach is the whole counsel of God. This is the only reason that Paul can say, I'm guiltless of the blood of all men, because I have not shunned to proclaim unto you the whole counsel of God. So I think the entirety of Scripture is important, every little piece of it. Uh, and the be best way to end up creating a cult that's off, off base is by omitting to uh, take into account all the scripture that bears on an important point. We need to be Berean uh, qualitatively and quantitatively, not just checking it, but checking every scripture that may have a bearing on a topic. That's important because the old saying is a, a, a text out of context is a pretext. And so many times we hear people say X, absolutely. And you say, but there's a passage over here that says not X. You know, people say, oh, here in Revelation, look at all these... Uh, these locusts, and they have a king over them named Abaddon, right? That's right there in Revelation 9. Right. But I look at Proverbs 30, verse 27, which says the locusts have no king. That tells me that whatever else the Revelation is talking about, those aren't locusts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I I love the, the phrase there, being a Berean, to test all things. Um, obviously, the, this um, this view that you're, you're presenting here... Um, is heavily driven by a, a philosophy of sola scriptura, let scripture interpret scripture. Um, how do you, um, how would you address the charge? Um, you know, the, if it's new, if it's new, it probably ain't true. 
um, you know, BB Warfield is, is creating this in the, the 20th century. Um, how do you, how do you address that as a, well, this is just kind of a, a new, uh, perspective. Well, that'd be, that's an interesting point because I certainly am concerned about chronological snobbery, um, on both directions. Uh, is it new is the first question. If it was the understanding of the apostles, it's not new. Mm. So if we're recovering what their position was uh, based on the way that they used their languages and their terms, that's significant to me. Um, that is not necessarily anything other than recovering you know, the, the, the meaning in, of the text as delivered. Mm-hmm. So uh, we cannot use even 20 centuries of sanctified scholarship as a club to say at no point is there going to be new light shed. The Puritans were smarter than that. They'd hmm. say, we, this is the scripture as we understand them, or as God might shed further light upon them. They did not block out additional light being shed, particularly in an area where it was not clear. And like I said, eschatology is the most disputed area, perhaps except maybe for ethics, um, in scripture. So for us to suddenly say these things are settled, uh, going back, these could be long settled errors. We have a whole bunch of long settled errors. I'll give you an example of one in uh Deuteronomy 25, 11, and 12, people say, oh, here's a passage where if um, a woman interferes with uh, a fight between her husband and another guy and she uh, attacks the other fellow's um, uh, genitals, then she's supposed to have her hand cut off. Well, that's completely wrong because the passage there is to shave her palm, and the palm is the uh, circumlocution for uh, her groin. So it's a very, very different thing. It's not a uh, mutilation at all. Uh, it is a public humiliation, which it matches up to the thing. So it is part of the principle of, um, you know, eye for an eye, it's proportionality. So mm-hmm. we don't have mutilation taught in the book of Deuteronomy. But for how many uh, centuries has that been floated as the correct interpretation? Even though the words are there, it didn't say cut off hand. It says shave her palm. Uh, and palm is known and used elsewhere in, in Scripture and in, in the Hebrew writings as a different thing entirely. So it was not the cutting off of the hand. So I rejoice that we correct these mistakes before someone goes uh, the wrong direction and, uh, and we have a world of hurt from misunderstanding scripture. Uh, and in this case, it's because of a translation mistake. You know, I'll finish with this. King James, I'm a, I use it, but I have to correct it every so often. And here's a very obvious place where it needs fixing. First John 2.8. King James, it says the darkness is past. This is wrong. That word paragatai is a middle uh, voice, passive, imperfect. It's correctly translated in other translations. The darkness is passing away and the true light is shining already. And that's important. That mm. means when Paul wrote, uh, when John wrote that, he was looking out, as Warfield says, on uh, Asia Minor, huge pagan darkness all over the world. And he says that darkness is passing away. That took a lot of strength of faith for him to say that. The darkness is an actual process of passing away because the true light is shining already. And that must be our faith. And so they, if you had a King James Bible and said, well, it's, all, it's been translated uh, in the perfect tense, darkness is, is past. Well, what darkness is that? Because it certainly seems like a lot of darkness around. But translated correctly uh, from the actual Greek and not from um, um, Jerome's misstep when he did the Vulgate, uh, now we're in good shape. The darkness is 
passing away. You know, that's my objection, I think, to Brother John MacArthur. He says the darkness is increasing. Now I have to make a choice. Do I believe St. John, who wrote the epistles of John and the Revelation, or do I trust John MacArthur? I have to side with Apostle John over John MacArthur. The darkness is passing away. And those who say, no, the darkness is increasing are walking by sight, and they're not being scriptural. The scripture affirms it even if every man says different. Romans 3, 4, let every uh, man, you know, let God be true, but every man a liar. And this instance, if God says there was going to be converted to the last man standing, then let everyone who objects to that, uh, if God proves himself true, well, of course, then where do we stand? Yeah. Uh, Mr. Salbretti, is there a chance that we will see a Revelation commentary from your hand in the future? I've been working on one for 30 years. <laughs> I hope oh. I, I, I get farther along with mine than um, Brother Gentry does with his. <laughs> <laughs> you, guys are, you guys are in a race right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that his is coming out because I think it, he has a very different view of Book of Revelation than I do. But uh, I hold that Christian scholarship requires all the best approaches to be put the best foot forward so we can evaluate them. Warfield yeah. said, so, uh, some of these things are so important that so long as there's anything even remotely plausible to sit and be in favor of a theory, we should hear it out and check it against scripture. Mm-hmm. So uh, his is an, um, excuse me, an important contribution to uh, these the, the things. Even if we don't uh, end up going his direction, we need to have his position represented the best way possible right. so that we can represent it properly when we interact with it. Uh, in, in its strongest form, not in preliminary forms or weaker forms. I've reviewed one of his books way back in the 80s, and it'd be nice to get um, my hands on his commentary uh, and with a red pen and go through it like I did with Chilton's and others who um, follow a preterist approach to Revelation, which Dr. Rashtuni, Warfield, and myself do not. There are many post-millennials who are not uh, preterist, but we're quiet about it, and so most people think, well, this preterist or bust. But that's not true. There's several different approaches that are still post-millennial, still see victory of Christ. They just don't try to cram the book into a small span of time. Uh, they see it as overarching the entire period between the advents. And I think uh, the, the more people write about this and expand and expound on it, the better. So we can say, okay, what's what's the best approach? What does the most uh, well, let's put it this way. Which one seems to have the fewest problems? Every theory has a problem of some kind. So the question is, which ones are are severe and crippling to a model? And which ones can we live with until we can gain further light upon it? Sure. I actually asked Mr. Gentry if he uh, addresses eschatological universalism in his commentary, and he said briefly. So, Yeah. It would be interesting to see what he has to say about it. Well, in, in, in the meantime, while we're waiting for... Uh your commentary and Gentry's commentary. Um, once again, our guest has been uh, Martin Celbretti. His writings can be found at uh, calcedon.edu. That's C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N.edu. Um, one of your big works was the Reconstructing Postmillennialism in the Journal of Reconstruction. Yes. Uh, right. So if, you, if the listener wants to learn more about this this position that, that's being put forth, um, that's an excellent uh resource to look mm-hmm. look to um and also other writings of yours some fiction works um and the calcedon podcast which i've benefited greatly from listening to um i see those episodes pop up on my news feed and like yeah 
a new Calcedon episode. Let's, <laughs> let's do this. Um, so we do really thank you for your time uh, today, Mr. Selbretti. Uh, we look forward maybe in the future getting together again, talking some uh, law of God, some theonomy. That'd yeah. be awesome. Excellent. Look forward to that too. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. This has been another episode of Born to Rain. We will catch you guys next time. See ya.